from WHQR Public Media, this is the Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us. Later on today's show, we'll be talking with Evan Folds, a supervisor with the New Hanover Soil and Water Conservation District, to answer a loaded but pretty important question. Why are we spraying poisons on playgrounds on purpose? But first, we're taking a glitter pill. The name is a play on the red pill meme born from the Matrix movies and adopted by various strains of online extremism. Glitterpill aims to combat that extremism and helps stakeholders better understand the kinds of radicalization that lead to it. Glitterpill was co-founded by Samantha Kuttner and Bjorn Eiler. Bjorn's an internationally renowned expert on counterterrorism and preventing radicalization into violent extremism, and has helped advise some of our own coverage here at WHQR in the past. He joins us today along with C.L. Murray, who has also worked with Bjorn with the Khalifa Institute. CL is a UNCW lecturer and also a researcher and data lead for Glitterpill, and you may recognize her from last summer's newsroom where we took a deep dive on the Proud Boys. Bjorn, CL, thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you. you. So tell me a little bit about why you wanted to found Glitterpill and what it aims to do. So um, first of all, one of the things we're seeing is like the national security complex tends to look at nations independently of each other and work very much in bobbles and uh, are not very good at communicating with each other and like dealing with the complexity of issues we're seeing neither on the domestic side nor on the national side. And so by kind of taking some of the work from that sector and making it available in, um, in also private sector, um, we're hoping to kind of have a broader impact and um, also understand more of the global dynamics as well as some of the domestic dynamics of extremism that aren't covered right now by like traditional security apparatus. When we talk about how we get money for research, and most of this money comes from governments, and they will throw money at certain kinds of things and will often focus just on domestic components without looking at the much larger picture. We now know that there's no silo off between, there's no wall between um, a lot of domestic uh, extremism and international extremism anymore. We're increasingly globalized as a society, uh, as an economy, and that has that also shows up in extremism. You know, when when people are sharing extreme memes, when they're, you know, radicalizing online and and liking videos and going through this sort of algorithmic sort of radicalization process, it doesn't really pay as much attention, you know, to whether this person is in this country or over this national boundary or not. So in essence, we're looking at like people in Wilmington who are like communicating instantly with people in Australia and people in the Philippines and like there's an economy and uh, trade of like memes and propaganda and recruitment materials and it transcends all of national borders but also um, because a lot of it ties into politics in different ways and of different flavors like that leads to also blind spots in terms of how it's dealt with from a national and domestic security perspective, right? I think the first time I saw this was anti-vax propaganda that was being generated outside of the United States and being shared on local social media, Telegram, Facebook, Twitter, which were doing various levels of stuff to keep that off, ranging from some to nothing at all. 
is this related to the way in which certain groups, I don't want to name any particulars, but I think we can think of one group in particular that's a terrorist <laughs> group in some countries and not in other countries. Is this a related phenomenon of this kind of siloing? Yeah, of course. And so, like, also a lot of that, like, leads to, like, weird political allegiances in, in different ways, right? Like, so, like, you have a, a terrorist group that's designated by Canada and by New Zealand who are, like, close allies of the U.S., but it's not designated in the U.S. And, like, that's leading to tension at the international security level between nations. At the same time, it's also leading to massive blind spots in terms of, like, how we're grappling with domestic security in the U.S. And so... You can't really protect yourself from an enemy if you can't name it an enemy, if that makes sense. And this isn't an enemy to democracy as it stands in the U.S. It's an existential threat to the country. And Canada and New Zealand are recognizing it. Australia, the U.K. and the U.S., like the other five ice nations, are hesitant to recognize it because it's so tied into like this gray zone, if you like, of like, what is permitted within the political sphere. And like this is a phenomenon we're seeing everywhere, right? Like so in Sweden where I live, like there's twenty-three percent from like the Nazi party basically that were elected in the elections last year. Um and so they have a significant amount of power in parliament. And you have similar things happening in like Poland and Hungary and Italy, etc., where the Nazis put on suits and go into parliaments and gain like the legitimate power but abuse the legitimate power in order to undermine the democratic institutions within which they got elected in the first place. Yeah, Italy just went as far right as I think it has been since Mussolini. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when you say Nazi, you're not using this as an epithet, something you call someone you don't like. You're you're literally talking about fascist principles of organizing and and governing. Yeah. So there's there's a couple of components to it. Um like obviously our like main uh, ethos within Glitterpel is uh, working against what we're calling the violent denial of, denial of diversity. So, like Nazis, whatever flavor they take, uh, as 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 we often describe them, are the people who want to repress um, the ability for diversity of thought, diversity of ethnicity, diversity of religion and faith, diversity of all of these like things that exist within a normal society. They want to eradicate that and create a monoculture. And so like that's in essence what we're talking about in, in most of these contexts where like these people come into government or, or like they seize power through legitimate or illegitimate means and use that in order to repress the ability for people to have the basic freedom to be whoever they are. Uh, which should be like an innate right of an individual, right? Yeah, the question is, you know, why why focus on that? And it's because of the the risk of that kind of dogmatic type of thinking, you know, that only my group is worthy. Um, only my group is acceptable uh, and everything else must be suppressed. When you are monocultural, you no longer evolve as a society. You don't, your economy collapses. Like, there's no innovation, no space for growth, no culture, no joy to life. And so we we are coming at this from also the perspective of like wanting to celebrate joy and have joyful lives rather than repressed lives. And so we want people to thrive, and, and that's the essence of it. 
Not to mention the the negative impact that you have on um, marginalized people, the people that are targeted by these sorts of things, right? They cannot be themselves. They're not allowed to have autonomy. Out of these overblown concerns that their diversity, it's a zero-sum game and that they are going to inherently sort of grab away from everyone else. There are these sort of overlapping spheres or overlapping parts of the political spectrum where you have someone, you know, a local county commissioner candidate, you know, who identifies as a Republican, member of the Republican Party, doesn't consider themselves to be a cultural warrior, doesn't seem particularly interested or concerned about the kind of stuff that you're talking about with picking a marginalized group and and going after them, is more concerned about probably fundraising and, and fiscal responsibility, but is probably traveling in the same circles as people who are what we might call as far right as you can be in the acceptable political spectrum, which is right. further right in the United States than it is in some other places. Right. Someone who is openly saying, you know, and I'm using this as an, as an example, well, my Christian beliefs lead me to say um, homosexual people shouldn't get married. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, that I don't believe in the existence of gender dysphoria. I don't believe trans people exist the way that they tell the world that they exist. Right. And then that group of people who is still in some places accepted as legitimate participants in the democratic system. To the right of that are people who are actively conspiring to use violence and intimidation and threats of violence to undermine the democratic system. So they're no longer good faith players in the game, so to speak. And it's hard for journalists and I think voters and residents and maybe even government officials and and scientists and academics to figure out, can we draw a line? Because it does seem so great. It does seem like you just keep walking into the woods and you don't realize at what point you've become lost. Yeah, no, that's a really great analogy. I mean, you know, there's definitely those who didn't realize they were getting lost. Um, but then there's also some some pretty clear tactics of those that present themselves as, um, you know, middle of the road, traditional politicians, um, but at the same time realizing that they're benefiting from the weaponization of extremists. And that's something that has been happening since I mean, since the beginning of uh, the United States, you know, um, when we look back at some of the the big sort of culture wars of history um, there, you know, in the 1950s, there was a lot of effort to cloak extremism, um, you know, this extreme denial of diversity in um, in an air of respectability. Uh, And that still happens. And I mean, part of this is like the collusion between like the respectable political side and the street fighters, right? And right. so, like, there's, first of all, overlapping personnel. Um, you know, there's groups that are trying to present themselves as politically somewhat legitimate who are still using tactics of in- intimidation, um, but whose members are also still in, like, street brawls and also just attacking minorities and things like that, right? And then there's, like, at a you know, higher level of political elites or whatever you would call it within um, within some of the parties, you have people who are very closely associated with movements that are violent, but still, like, they themselves personally can wipe them, their hands and say, like, we are not that. But, like, obviously they uh, exist in a symbiotic relationship where, like, ultimately some of these groups we're talking about are de facto the militia arms of um, like somewhat legitimate politicians who are ultimately benefiting from an illegitimate activity, right? 
I think there's also the aspect of groups that have arguments that on the face of it are at least in the Overton window of acceptable democratic discourse, but mask to varying degrees of success actual just hate. And the example I think of has been the book banning trend. There have been, um, it was interesting, the first wave of these book bans seemed to it did focus on material that I think some people could reasonably object to. I've, I've seen some of these, and I think these books are probably too sexually explicit for third grader. But that's my personal opinion. Other parents might feel different. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that's a fair thing to have an open conversation about. Right. But it was hard to ignore that the preponderance of these books featured, you know, uh, queer characters, characters of color, especially queer characters of color. And it felt like in some of the conversations that I've overheard at the back of school board meetings that this was... Yes, about, you know, what is acceptable, what is an acceptable level of of sexual content to show a child, but also a pushback against people. I would hear people say things like the woke agenda and they're ramming it down our throats. And, you know, why do we have to care about, you know, why are we all of a sudden reading about these queer narratives? And I don't want my kid to know about that. And not liking the characters were, you know, from different races Mm -hmm. and having sexual relationships. So this is miasma, this caldera of like racist and homophobic and xenophobic ideas. And then on the top, a little cap of like, yeah, but we're just concerned about what the kids are reading. Right. Yeah, but I think I'll like, this is a country built on the idea of individual freedom, which makes it fascinating when like this is a conversation about banning books outright in libraries rather than a, about parents like telling their kids, maybe I'll read that book. Like, you're not ready for that yet. Like, parenting could happen within families, right? It doesn't need to happen at the school board level. And so this is all where you see politics being used for repression and f- to remove individual rights from people. Like, if I want to let my kid read The Bluest Eyes, like, I will let my kid read The Bluest Eyes. Like, it shouldn't be controlled from a school board level. And so, like, again, like, that's about taking away people's freedoms to choose how they raise their kids. It's not about, like, it's not about giving freedom really to neither parents nor kids. And so this is where it comes into like the violent denial, right? Like where like that violence is exerted through repression and through censorship. And, you know, First Amendment country and uh, in the individual rights country, uh, it seems contradictory from like a foreign perspective as well. I mean, if you're the ones that are burning, banning and burning books, then you're, I mean, historically, not usually the good guys, really, you know. But I mean, this this really does come down to, you know, one vision of a parent's rights versus another, right? Um, and, you know, there is, it's not very clear how... There are some people who are very genuine about this, um, but as in the past, there are a lot of people for whom this is just a surface issue. You know, this is something that they can say. Um, you know, um, just like with um, you know busing in the past and desegregation in the past. You know, there when we're talking about the violent denial of diversity, right? It's it's not just in this sort of systematic sort of creation of structures that are inherently 
um, uh, beneficial to certain groups and not beneficial to others. But it's also one of the reasons that we so often see extremists use women and children, always. Women and children, you know, we're protecting our women, we're protecting our children, is because that is that is a public good. Like, you know, nobody is going to argue that children are not good, you know, that, that they're not something that should be protected, right? Uh, and nothing gets people worked up more than threats to their kids, right? You know, it brings out the mama bear and everybody, you know? And so by targeting these kinds of issues, they are, they are, are you know, able to, um, uh, you know, weaponize these, these issues that are really often, you know, about deeper things, you know, deeper divisions between people. Uh, there's the the classic quote from Lee Atwater in the 80s where he said, you know, we used to say the N-word and now we can't say that anymore. So we say buses, you know, we go right. to the school boards. You know, talking about Lee Atwater and dog whistling, you know, there are the people who put the messages out, you know, the people who are encoding stuff in messages. And then there are the other side of that. It's how people are receiving stuff and reacting to it. You know, and I just think about some of the disparate reactions to, you know, equally profane or obscene comment in, you know, hard rock in the 80s versus hip hop and rap in the 80s. Well, and we also need to recognize, too, that there are there's a lot of types of racism, right? You know, there's there are racists that know they're racists and they're clear about it in everything except when they are in a space where, you know, communicating that would be negative for them. We call the next swivel racists. (laughs) There you go. Right. Yeah. Um, but then there's a lot of people who have, um, you know, internalized, uh, you know, all of these these norms uh, in society and and have, um, you know, unconscious bias um, that they may not fully be aware of. So they they define things that they're familiar with in a completely different way than they define things that they're unfamiliar with. You know, and this is OK, because obviously this is different than this, you know. So a lot of times they may not even realize that it's because of race and will vociferously argue with you against that is no, it has nothing to do with race. But when when you try and like press them on it, it's difficult for them to have an answer that doesn't go back to, well, it's different. Right. I like the people who are like, it's absolutely fine when Steve Earle threatens to use explosives he stole from the army when he was in Vietnam to maim and kill federal agents who are trying to encroach on his marijuana patch. That's fine. <laughs> but when NWA says something about law enforcement, that is not okay. Ideological inconsistency. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Okay, on that note, we've got to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Bjorn Eiler and C.L. Murray talking about Glitterpill's work on tracking and understanding extremism. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Chalkman, here with Bjorn Eiler, founder of Glitterpill, a company focused on helping governments, companies, and the rest of us understand and overcome extremism. Also with us is C.L. Murray, a UNCW lecturer who works as a researcher and data lead for Glitterpill. All right, so I want to bring things back a little bit to uh, to Glitterpill and some of the work you're doing about, because a lot of this... A lot of the conversations we've been having over the last couple of years about far-right extremism, you can't have that conversation without talking about the online component of this. Yeah. Right. 
and if you you know you follow the journalism about this, it almost seems like they're reporting on two stories. They're reporting on this you know, 4chan style debasement that's happening online. And then independently, um, these sort of almost isolated attacks potentially committed by far right extremists. And those two stories don't seem to be being woven together very well. Well, I I think like you're hitting the nail on the head with just like how you're phrasing that question, right? Like you're talking about the real world as separate from the online world. And that's not true. It's never been true. Like the online world is an integrated part of everyone's life. Like I don't know about you, but I'm spending like no, four hours a day on like my phone, anyways, and like live a lot of my social life there. And that's true for everyone. Like everyone has 150 apps on their phones. So, like that's <laughs> that's where they communicate. And so, first of all, we need to like have the base understanding of the world is the world and the online sphere is a component of that. Now that's a more globalized sphere also for extremists, right? And so, like, we're seeing content, like, from the UK show up in the US and vice versa, and, like, all over all over the place, there's, like, this content flow of things that then tie into, like, where some of these guys who are going off and committing terrorist attacks, um, like, are getting their diet of information from, like. And so, like, there's certainly a relationship between the extremist propaganda, recruitment materials, and also like their ability to coordinate and communicate um, that really like fuels some of these attacks. And so there's been a failure from like a national security perspective and from a media perspective as well to understand that like these guys are not lone wolves. Like no. there's 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 no independence thought really behind most of them and like a lot of the manifestos that we see, like, these guys publish as well are, like, pure copy-pasta from, like, either other manifestos or from, like, this online sphere of content, right? What separates a group that exists within that sphere online from a group like Al-Qaeda or ISIS or, like, any other terrorist organization? Like, it's not material. Like, it, it doesn't really have a significant distinction from other terrorist organizations. But because these guys are usually not like card-carrying members of a terrorist organization or when they are the organizations they are members of are not designated as such because of like inherent Islamophobia basically and how terrorist groups are designated. It leads to like these blind spots of like we don't capture them because we don't have the frameworks to capture them. And so part of what we're trying to do with Glitter Bell is really like look at the more nebulous aspect of terrorism like we're looking at like who is this individual who's who are they engaging with how are they engaging with online content how are they engaging offline and by looking at like the ecosystem and at the relationships we can capture more of like the nebulous sphere as we call it of these extremists who collaborate collude who are sharing content who are engaging with each other in different ways and who are sometimes members of groups, sometimes not members of groups, et cetera. And sometimes those groups are designated and sometimes they are not, and they change affiliations all the time as well, which has been really traditionally hard to capture. But we're building like, a new database technologies, and ultimately our goal is to capture the more complex dynamics in order to do a more complex analysis that ultimately helps us stop more bad guys from doing bad stuff. 
I mean, I'm a journalist. I'm able to find a lot of this content. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's, you know, a certain group plans to protest at, you know, a drag event. Yeah. Um, and then they show up in the real world. To your point, right? Yeah. A, a conversation that has members from a five, six county area all of a sudden becomes very real flesh and blood people at an event with the intent to intimidate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, by, by gathering that information, crawling the web, whatever, however it works, um, is there a predictive power? That's the goal. The goal is ultimately to have, you know, these better mechanisms to be able to predict. You know, there's there's this great quote from uh, Jan Berger that I keep going back to again and again because, well, one, I'm from this area and hurricane analogies really, really kind of uh, set well with me. Um, where he talked about how, you know, we we know what a hurricane looks like, but we also know what these other components that lead to hurricanes look like. You know, the, the hurricanes start off with, you know, cue Toto music here, uh, with the rains in Africa, right? And then, you know, we see the, the development of these depressions, uh, you know, that we, we monitor. And that's how you know, meteorology has evolved is by being able to monitor not just the worst case scenario of sorts of incidents once the hurricane has already developed and has already hit and people are already dead, you know, but also looking at the things that feed into that, you know, the things that are the precursors to that, the the, the components that that eventually have the potential, they don't always, but have the potential to become, you know, a, a fully fledged hurricane. Uh, and by by looking at things, by only looking at the worst case scenarios, um, you're missing the the um, the the creation of these these kinds of systems. Yeah, like a lot of the data that exists on terrorist attacks exists on terrorist attacks, but not on all of the things that are like surrounding a terrorist or extremist organization and how they are like working up to it. And so by collecting that, we are uh, trying to get to like the statistical or predictability element of it, but we still pick up on things. Like we know when there's gonna be like a um, queer event that will attract like an attack, and so there's that. We see chatter about things like attacking power grids a couple of <laughs> months ahead of the attack on the power grids here, and like we alert law enforcement to those things. <laughs> they still happen, uh, so that's frustrating, but. Um, you know, we we have the predictive power right now in like being able to see what's happening and see it well in advance because like this chatter does happen. So I just real quick, the in with regards to the power station attacks, because we're still talking about that here in North Carolina. Of course. Um, this was this wasn't like an algorithmic like analysis. This was people specifically talking about doing specific things. There were manuals coming out like okay. a couple of so, months like, before that. What we would consider happened. like a legitimate police tip. Yeah. Like, hey, this guy <laughs> said this thing. And we know law enforcement had like the manuals as well, right? We, yeah. We all, yeah. like everyone in the national security complex weren't like paying attention to this thing. And then, yeah, there was very little action taken. That is, I understand your frustration yeah. with that. I, I share your frustration. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the things I'm curious about, and this is, you know, I think this is always part of the American reaction to anything surveillance is, you know, the potential for abuse, the potential for false positives. And people immediately go to like the worst case dystopian version where right. you crack an off color joke and then you are arrested. But I'm assuming that is not what you guys are talking about. Yeah, and we're kind of going at it from like a best case scenario perspective rather than the worst case scenario, right? And so like, first of all, when it comes to how we're using our models, like we're not using it for hard law enforcement, right? Like we're not a national security agency. And so like we aren't, we we don't have the power of like monopolizing violence in the same way as like 
law enforcement typically does, not necessarily applicable here. But the other element is like we're trying to take preventative measures. So we're trying to make sure that like there can be events that are safe. And we're trying to make sure that like safety happens at the public level. And we're working with private sector companies in order to make sure that people stay safe on, say, the social media platforms, that people stay safe uh, both online and offline. And so like we're we're not coming to this from like the perspective of like these are the bad guys and we're gonna like capture them. We're coming to it from the perspective of like these are the society and they should be safe. Um, so yeah, I, I think we're kind of like flipping some of that. Um, we're also only relying on like what people put out about themselves. Like we're looking at open sources. We're not. And the other the other thing is we're not looking just at individuals, right? Because that's not going to be that's not going to be as reliably predictive. One of the things that I often tell my students is I would hate to be the FBI analyst that, that got the red flag about Omar Mateen, who, who shot up the Pulse nightclub, because I would have looked at that man and the fact that he had no ideological consistency, he did not seem to be very aware of the difference between Shia and Sunni terrorist groups, which is like not knowing the difference between <laughs> Protestants and Catholics, but wanting to kill on behalf of them. And I would have been like, eh, this guy's probably just an idiot, right? You know, is he blowhard? There's a lot of that. But there are different ways that we see the growth of these things. It's not about one raindrop. It's about these rains that then develop into something that could be something more dangerous in the future. So it's not about going after certain individuals. It's about recognizing the threat landscape based on very similar kinds of uh, mindset to, you know, hotspot policing, you know. And we're hoping, too, that uh, over the course of the development of this, that we can, you know, refine that and improve upon that, just like we do with meteorology. You know, it's not it's not a perfect science, and it never will be because there are too many variables at play. But it, we can have better predictive power. We can give you a cone of, of likelihood um, that this is going to be something that's of greater risk than something else, you know. So. Okay, so in, in closing, I got to ask, and I should have asked at the top, why glitter pill? <laughs> so um, within the extremist sphere, they've for some reason adopted uh, like the meme of the red pill and the blue pill from the Matrix, like, Maybe made by trans people and like <laughs> really queer celebrating maybe in the first place. So it's fascinating that they've they've selected that. But uh, the idea is like you take the red pill to wake up to the reality of like the horrors of the world, and that's when you're becoming like a white supremacist, Nazi, extremist. Call it whatever you want to. Um, in our like um, humorous approach to this, and in our um, understanding of the inherent value of of diversity and our efforts to to try to celebrate that as a countermeasure to the violent denial of diversity. We're like, well, how do we take the pill concept and have fun with it? Um, and we were like listing different pills in a context to like mess with the pilling concept and like glitter pill came up as like a logical conclusion and the name kind of just stuck. So yeah. yeah. One thing that I did want to add from, you know, uh, from earlier is that we are not just looking at one style of extremism. You know, it's not just far right extremism. That does tend to be the one that we're seeing the most of right now. 
that's also a lot more um, uh, you know nuanced than it used to be. We're we're seeing like combinations of more libertarian sort of thinking and even environmentalist sort of thinking that are also kind of glomming together with fascism and misogyny and all kinds of other things. You know, so it's not really just looking at one ideology. The problem is any ideology that is violently denying diversity and especially harming marginalized groups, it's, it's, a, it's a recipe for disaster and it's a recipe for the opposite of democracy. I mean, like, Bart, to add to that as well, like, we, we do work here in the U.S., but we also do work in Australia, New Zealand, in Europe, in the Middle East, North Africa, in mm-hmm. Brazil, um, like, all of which have, like, different flavors of the idea of, like, violently denying diversity. Like, some of it yes. is written in Islamist extremism, some of it is written in white supremacy, some of the reading in other forms of supremacy mm-hmm. and like we are ultimately like applying the same model globally to the issue of extremism and by doing that uh, also capturing a whole lot more in terms of like the breadth of what we're um, assessing risks and threats around uh, rather than like again kind of funneling in and like leaving so many blind spots that have been left by focusing only on like one specific type of ideological extremism. Mm-hmm. We're like trying to capture the breadth of it and make sure that like people can be safe in being who they are and believing what they believe and doing what they do without facing the threats of repression as a result. One thing that has struck me in my conversations with some people, I think I could fairly describe as far right or or even far right extremists, has been our conversations often begin with a shared set of facts where we actually agree. So we'll, we'll be talking about Iran-Contra or, you know, the evils of the pharmaceutical industry yeah. or the Tuskegee experiments, you know, real things where there's a ground truth that we agree on. Hey, that was messed up. Yeah. Um, and then you feel the drift towards something more extreme, something more hateful. But I think some of those other strains, you know, environmentalism is the one I think of often mm-hmm. is that a lot of times we have very similar attitudes on, you know, corporate culture's responsibility in the way the United States regulates environmental pollution. Yeah. And I'm like, that's a very reasonable, we, we, are, we should be right smack dab in the middle of the Overton window here. Yeah. But then, like, when it goes down to, like, well, society will fall down and we should, like, rebuild the white race and, like, uh, Eden after the fall yes. of society as a result of, like, ecological change. Like, you, so like, direct. depart from the reality at some point and the yes. agreement, right? And so, like, that happens pretty much across the board in, like, all of these. Like, should we be worried about things? Yes. Should we have discussions about things? Yes. But, like, at some point, like... There is the departure from like normal discourse and agreement on like the facts where like the conclusion for the extremist becomes, well, because this is happening, let's eradicate everyone else. Yes. And like that shouldn't be the logical conclusion in a healthy and thriving society. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. you know, uh, that's why we're like trying to bring it into back into the sanity and, and the and the discourse that's grounded in some shared truths as well. Yeah. I always I always grab that as being the feeling as if you were sitting in a car having a perfectly normal conversation with someone and then they just lock all the doors. <laughs> <laughs> It really does feel like that sometimes. Like you've seen this in like eighties <laughs> movies where like they had the physical metal pole that used to lock and it just like snaps down and you're like, I'm in trouble. I'm now. in trouble. Yeah. I'm in trouble. I'm in danger. Um, well I've I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's 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 fascinating stuff. And you do have some public facing stuff that people can check out, right? Yeah. So if you go to glitterbell.io, like there's um we're putting out um a fair bit of insights and, and things like that there. Sign up for the newsletter, like 
learn more about those and like we'll have uh, more public facing and the products coming out uh, in the coming months as well. So um, that should be interesting to anyone who's uh, interested in learning more about um, like the national and domestic security issues here in the U.S., but also global security issues where we're tackling everywhere. Um, and particularly also when it comes to like the online component, which has interesting things happening in the regulatory space, et cetera, right now um, yes. to um, all kind of work towards this future of a healthier society, both online and offline. Yeah. All right. Well, Bjorn, CL, thank you guys so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. All right. Well, we've got to take another break, but we will be right back to sit down with Evan Folds, supervisor for the New Hanover Soil and Water Conservation District, to talk about toxic chemicals in our public parks. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman. This year, officials kicked off a pilot program at Olson Park, a facility of soccer and baseball fields located just north of the city of Wilmington and co-owned by New Hanover County and the city. It's the site of a grant-funded pilot program to manage the grounds without using toxic chemicals like glyphosate. For Evan Folds, a supervisor with the New Hanover Soil and Water Conservation District, that's just a start. Folds is working to keep momentum with a petition he's put out, asking for more aggressive and more imaginative efforts to manage our region's public parks and green spaces without using chemicals with negative health impacts. Evan, thanks for being here. Thank you. Great to be here. So I want to talk about this petition you've got out Mm. about the, the park pilot, but I want to start with a question you pose in the petition, which we'll have a link to in the show notes. Why are we spraying poisons on playgrounds on purpose? Hmm. Well, you know, the, uh, the reality of what we're doing comes to that. It's, it's pretty stark. It may move people in ways that are uncomfortable. Uh, it may be the way that the city or the county, you know, doesn't want to hear it, possibly. But that is the reality of what we're undertaking. So I, I think at this point, it's really important to be transparent and to be honest in a way that we can actually articulate a, a different way of doing things. So you've t- looked at a, a fairly long list of chemicals that both the city of Wilmington and New Hanover County use to, let's say, manage mm-hmm. their green spaces, mostly their parks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you called them the worst of the worst. Mm-hmm. I think Roundup is the one people are probably most familiar with mm-hmm. um, and the one that has had probably the most public change of reputation. Mm-hmm. I mean, for decades, Roundup was considered to be safe. And uh, then in 2015, the World Health Organization said it was uh, probably cancer-causing. Mm. Um, the courts lagged behind because of the way the United States regulates things. But I think now if you say Roundup, you've got a better chance of people recognizing, oh, that might not be good. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair to say. I mean, it, it's also a testament to, again, the reality. Um, Roundup is the, the kind of the catch-all name, but the reality is the active ingredient glyphosate combined with the inert ingredients, which the EPA does not mandate be divulged, uh, is also part of the controversy. But at this point, it's off patent. Uh, we actually don't use Roundup. We might use this 
uh, we use several different kinds of glyphosate, uh, but it can be called different things. And you know, the, it's it's really a riddle because the danger of glyphosate is not necessarily that it's the most toxic, but that it's water soluble. So very literally, the, the Roundup we're spraying here ends up in your water and your drink and your food um, in the air. 80% of air and water samples are testing positive for glyphosate. I think it's 80% of human urine samples. And show. 70% of the air in the water, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, right. And it's a carcinogen, um, and it's also, uh, in your petition, you, you know, it's it's bad for the pollination system. Well, glyphosate, not specifically. Some of these other chemicals. Yeah, the yeah. neonicotinoids. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things, like, are we being... Uh, are we acting in, within integrity? We're BCD USA and we're spraying, you know, known toxins to bees. You know, it's out of alignment, right? And I think that's really the call is it's not a banning exercise. It's not necessarily a product replacement exercise. We need to put on a new lens of how we look at the natural world and leverage it to the values that we would want if we were asked. And, and that ultimately is what we've come to. We're undertaking a program that I don't think anyone can rationalize. We don't even know. I mean, the list that I generated, the city and the county don't even have themselves. I had to issue a public information request and actually request the POs after they weren't able to ask the gen- answer the general question. So it's a matter of getting organized and creating a priority about how we approach things rather than just showing up and trying to nuke it. You know. So there's a couple of questions I want to ask because I, I want people to be able to hear the thought process that's going mm-hmm. on here. One is that the alternative, or one alternative mm-hmm. that you've championed um, does not provide maybe the immediate results that some of these toxic chemicals do. Um, and that tends to be a metric for, and I won't speak generally for, I'll mm. speak more generally for you know, government in general. Mm. They, they want something that gives results right away. So what's what's the timeline for this kind of alternative? Yeah, well, it's, so you'd, you'd have to create a specific scenario. And it's one of the challenges is, you know, the natural park pilot that's underway in Olson Park was designated for ball fields. That's a performance-based challenge, right? That's different than cracks in a sidewalk. It's different than medians in a road, right? So you, you have to separate out what you're working with to start. But if you took the glyphosate and cracks of, you know, we're spraying it in the river walk, right, in the river, right? It's like it doesn't make any logical sense. The replacement product that you could buy uh, is more expensive. The re- reality of how much money we're spending on Roundup which I, or glyphosate, which I'm not totally clear on because I haven't gotten that data yet, it's not enough to really be concerned about the costs based on the, the known impact. So there's sort of a value proposition and analysis that we need to perform and just think through these things in that way. You can also, like Raleigh, uses a flame. But when you go to the city and you ask about that level of creativity, it was actually suggested by a staff member of our city who came from Raleigh. We don't have the budget to do it. You're talking about these little portable flamethrowers used to remove weeds. Yeah. Um, I will say, uh, selfishly, mm. they are fun. <laughs> and there's that. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm glad you brought up the money. Uh, a little back of the napkin math, we're talking roughly $16 per gallon for what the city and county are, are at least in part, using right now mm. versus something that has the potential to be quite a bit more expensive. You know, it could be two or three times more expensive. I, I think the bottom line is if you look at the budget for, for pesticides, uh, just on a round number, and if you doubled it, it's not enough to be concerned based on how we spend money. I will say the, point. the entire budget was less than like one police cruiser. That's the point. Okay. So, you know, are we prioritizing in a way that, you know, a budget should restrict us from keeping things the way that we are? That The real kicker to this is that, you know, there's and the reason I'm being more vocal about it, because the city was gracious in, in adopting the natural park pilot. I got $10,000 offset uh, any cost. Uh, we're spending our way through that. The danger is the, the ball fields at Olson Park are the subsoil of Highway 40 development. 
it's terrible soil. So we're setting up a scenario where we're going to give ourselves a season of agronomy change. To, and then what is the measurement of success? You know, okay, put a pin in that. For yeah. people who don't know, what is agronomy? Yeah, sorry. The, the agriculture, basically uh, land care. You know, we have uh, two, two uh, professionals at Olson Park that maintain that facility. Um, that should be four people right out of the gate. They don't have enough manpower. The, the lights at Miracle Field were built in the 70s. The, the bud, they had a third of the budget that they needed last year to buy the products that they've been buying, which ironically is a, sort of a good thing. Um, but the, it comes down to you know, what is the priority of how we're putting forward the result that we want, right? And, and the challenge is that because we don't have a, a way in which to evaluate what success is, the danger is we go through all of this effort we look out there and we say, hey, it costs more. It doesn't look a whole lot different, and it doesn't work. And then we just keep doing what we're doing. And the argument that I'm trying to make is that, especially when you compartmentalize a ball field versus a median versus a crack in the sidewalk, we cannot continue to do what we're doing. Like any breathing human being, I'm going to make a safe bet, I hope, that would look at how we're conducting what we're accomplishing. Even if we did keep doing the same products that we're applying, we need to establish a protocol of how that's decided to be done. So we have third-party applicators out there. We have no idea what they're spraying, how much, when, this sort of thing. So you're saying, I mean, but then they farm that out to a third-party contractor. For the most part. Who accomplishes the mission, and we're not particularly concerned with how the mission is accomplished. That's correct. So it it takes more, my point here is that it, it, it doesn't just take the political will to spend a bit more money, it takes the desire to actually say there's the specific way, we, an intentional way that we want to do this. Yeah. I mean, f- for example, Carbro uh, actually banned glyphosate in 1999. And that might be the one thing you said it's not about banning, but you would probably that may be. The, that I appreciate thing. you saying that because it, it really, if you ban one thing, there's 10 other things that come behind it. You can't ban everything. It takes too much energy and it's not really uh, appropriate because um, there, there may be, I'm also not on a total soapbox about this. There may be a place where that's needed. Say it's a fire ants at a school or poison ivy or something like that, where there's actually a a concern in that way. Well, instead of just going in and nuking it with the thing that you know is going to kill it, try something else first that doesn't work. Okay, well, we've got to take another stab at it. You know, we have this process that says we use these materials as a last resort, not as, you know, walking through the door. That's really the end all be all. One question I've heard from folks, um, especially parents who take their kids to the many lovely parks in Wilmington and Evergany, is are we talking about like, you know, basically environmental exposure where we are putting this into the environment is our tax dollars. We're responsible for it. Mm-hmm. Or are we talking about actual, like, we're spraying this somewhere where kids are going to come into contact with it? Or yeah, both. Well, the playgrounds on purpose is, is literally glyphosate. That came from an acknowledgement at the county on the new park that we're building, uh, the nature park out there. And they decided to put a jungle gym. And I asked them, you know, what is your policy for dealing with weeds in mulched areas? And they were just like, oh, it's, it's glyphosate, it's Roundup. It was just a sort of a matter of fact answer. So that is our policy by default because it's how professionals in this realm are trained. And it backs into a, a much larger story that we probably don't have time for today. But the bottom line is that you know we cannot just go through the motions on things we've identified are damaging to public health. And I would argue also quality of life. And I would also argue also environmental uh, ecosystems, right? Like that is a lot of what the brand of our area is. We're a beach destination, right? And so we need to be leading by example, particularly at the end of a watershed. The amount of Roundup and glyphosate being sprayed on the conventional farms that surround us is inordinate. And it's all being collected down to the mouth of the Cape Fear River watershed. There's actually a a short film on the website Farmers Footprint, farmersfootprint.us. If you watch their short film, it tells the story of the Mississippi River. 
in Cancer Alley at the end of the Mississippi River that collects all the Midwest agricultural chemicals and annihilates the end of the river, the people that live there. Yeah, I mean, and that's part of the, the long history of Monsanto creating this basically feedback loop where they are both selling Roundup and related products and also genetically modified crops that are resistant to Roundup. So you kind of, you're locked into a cycle of using both unless you radically overhaul your farming methods. Yeah, well said. I mean, it's a brilliant business model. It's bad for people. I, yeah, it, yeah, it, that's how it feels. Um, okay, so big takeaway of this of this petition that you have out now. Mm-hmm. What would you like to see? What would, what would be sort of a meaningful result from this? Well, I mean, if there were a thousand people on this petition that I could point to having the conversations that I that I'm having, it would be helpful. Uh, of course, a petition, is, especially on change.org, is not binding in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but the reason it is a bit long, if you read it, is it was an attempt at a complete thought. You know, One of the things that's real around here, having lived here for 25-some years, I haven't counted in a while, it's very difficult to introduce new ideas in Wilmington, New Hanover County. And I, I believe that, that that comes from a sort of a status quo, how we've done things sort of space that is not going to get us where we want to go in the world. So we need systems thinking at the highest level. We need to be able to see the forest and how it works together as an ecosystem and the value that we can attain from that and that it brings us rather than just all of the trees. You know, the words, you say the word silo to people in Wilmington and everybody's like, oh, you know, it's just how, how it works. So we can break that down and actually turn these challenges into opportunities. And that's the moment I believe that we're in. So the petition is, is not binding. It's really just an exercise, hopefully to get a complete thought across and maybe inspire some people to see this in a different way and then generate a list of names that I can carry with me as I have these conversations. Fair enough. Well, Evan Folds, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of the newsroom. Thanks to our guests, Bjorn Eiler, C.L. Murray, and Evan Folds. Thanks also to the WHQR production team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. If you missed any part of this show, you can find it at whqr.org, or you can get the show as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can get podcasts, except for Stitcher, R.I.P. Stitcher. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. Newsroom.